What a beautiful day. I am planning to mow my grass for the first time this year when I get home this afternoon. It's always a big moment in my life. See if the lawnmower still works. Before that, though, we get to open the Word of God together. Uh, just a couple of things looking ahead to the next week. Uh, I don't think Nathaniel's told you, but Nat's actually off to Vietnam on Saturday for two weeks with work, so he won't be here for the next couple of Sundays. It'd be great to pray for him and uh, for the family while he's off in Vietnam. It'd be good especially to pray for Nathaniel's health, as those of you who are part of Gateway know. Uh, Nat's had all kinds of health issues over the last years. Seem to be seeing some progress in some of them, which we praise God for, but let's pray for uh, God's hand upon Nathaniel while he's away and that he stays healthy and strong. And um, while Nathaniel was heading off to Vietnam next week, on Wednesday and Thursday this week, I'm away. A small group of us are gathering in Red Hill for two days of coaching. Uh, a number of us who are a part of the advanced movement to church in the UK uh, having two days of coaching about how we can help strengthen other churches. And then on Friday and Saturday, we're going to be joined by the elder teams from all our advanced churches in the UK uh, for two days together. So that's going to be a great time, and I'd love you to pray for us as we're away at that. We have a number of friends who are with us from overseas for that time. PJ Smythe from Washington is going to be with us. And uh, Sean Craig, who leads Crosspoint Church in St. Louis, Missouri, which Grace and I did a weekend for last August. He's going to be with us. And also somebody called Ben Durbin, a friend of mine, who is then going to be here with us next Sunday. And I just want to uh, tell you a little bit about Ben and encourage you to be here next Sunday. The clocks go forward, and it's Mother's Day, which always tends to mess things up. But it's worth adjusting your clocks and getting here and letting your mum wait to lunch or bringing her with you, even better, to church, to come and hear Ben. Ben leads a church called the Bridge Community Church in a town called Leddington in Missouri. It's real Rust Belt Midwest Territory, Leddington. It's a place where they had lead mines. It's a small town. Only 422 people live in the town. But the church which Ben leads is twice the size of that because they've had such an impact on their town and surrounding towns. Uh, since they started the church 13 years ago, they've baptized more than 500 people and they've planted two other churches in Missouri and two churches in Bangkok, Thailand. So there's an incredible grace upon Ben and the church which he leads. And so I would urge you to be here next Sunday to hear Ben, and uh, I'm believing that God will impart something to us of the uh, missional faith that Ben has and something of the fruitfulness which, by God's grace, he's experienced in his context. So do be here next Sunday to come, come and hear Ben. It's going to be terrific. Right, we are in the book of Acts. We started a series in Acts in January last year. We've had quite a number of breaks. We've chopped it up, so this is actually only the... 27th uh, message. Uh, still a longer series than we normally do, but we wanted to do this book justice. And the book and our story began in Jerusalem in the year probably around AD 32. We can't be exactly sure, but something in that region. And it begins with Jesus, who has been raised from the dead, standing with his disciples, instructing them through the power of the Holy Spirit, and promising that the power of the Holy Spirit will fall upon them. And then the book of Acts gets running. On the day of Pentecost, those first believers, followers of Jesus, are gathered together in a room in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit is poured out of them, just as Jesus had said he would be. They are filled with courage and boldness. They go out into the streets, start preaching the gospel. There's an incredible response. And that day, the Jerusalem church begins. 3,000 people come to faith that day, are baptized. And a church forms which 
is a church which knows a great deal of commitment that says that they're a church who are devoted to fellowship, to teaching, to prayer, to the breaking of bread. This is a church who are committed to one another, committed to Jesus, committed to the gospel. And incredible things happen in Jerusalem in these first days of the church. And as I've said, as we've gone through this series, it always kind of messes with my mind to think there were no followers of Jesus anywhere in the world except in Jerusalem at this time. But God is doing amazing things through them. One amazing miracle that happens earlier on in the story is that the apostles Peter and John go up to the temple to worship and they see a man begging, someone who's never been able to walk his whole life and he's now in his 40s. And Peter looks at him and says, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. It's an incredible miracle as this man who's been lame since birth gets up and walks. That's good news for him. And it's good news for the gospel witness but it stirs up opposition. The apostles get arrested and threatened. But the church respond not by hunkering down and running away, but by praying to God. God, give us more boldness that we might do more in your name in this city. It's a church, a group of people who are really impacted by what Jesus has done for them. That's reflected in the way that they share their lives together. There's a phenomenal generosity in this church. It says there was no needy person amongst them because if anybody had need, others would sell what they had and provide for the needs of their brothers and sisters in Christ. But then it's a group of people who begin to experience real pressure from all those who would oppose what is happening, would oppose the name of Jesus and oppose the gospel. And that reaches a particular crisis point when a young man called Stephen, who's one of the leaders in this first church, is a taken kind of prisoner. He's put on a sort of show trial, and then he is stoned to death. And this looks like complete disaster, but actually it becomes a moment by which the gospel advances again. Rather than the gospel dying, instead it begins to push out beyond the confines of Jerusalem into the surrounding territory. A man called Philip goes and preaches to the Samaritans, a group of people who live pretty close to the Jews in Jerusalem but are hated by and hate the Jews. And yet Philip goes to them and they respond to the good news of Jesus. And then Philip speaks to an Ethiopian official and he becomes a follower of Jesus and takes the gospel back to Africa. And then the apostle Peter is uh, doing amazing miracles. He prays for somebody who has died, and they're raised to life. And then Peter sees a vision which leads him to go to the home of a Roman centurion, which for a devout Jew would have been unimaginable to do. But Peter goes in response to the vision of God. He starts to talk about Jesus. The Holy Spirit falls upon the Romans in this house, and they come to faith in Christ. The mission to the nations starts to run. And then we hear about the conversion of Paul, at this time known as Saul, the man who had stood and supervised the killing of Stephen, who is encountered by Jesus as he goes to Damascus and becomes the great apostle who plants churches throughout the Aegean region. And in, at the beginning of this year, at the end of January this year, we pick the story up again in Acts chapter 20, and this now is about the year AD 55, 20 plus years after Jesus' first commissioned his disciples. And Paul has been in Ephesus with some friends of his for three years, and he has enjoyed a time of extraordinarily successful, blessed ministry in Ephesus. And then he leaves Ephesus and has a season of traveling around, encouraging, strengthening the churches which he has previously planted in the years before. And then, compelled by the Holy Spirit, and as he says in Acts 20, 
20 to the Ephesian elders, I'm going to Jerusalem compelled by the Holy Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. He goes to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, he's arrested. He's held prisoner for two years. Then he gets on a boat. He's taken to Rome where he's going to stand trial. Great storm blows up. He's shipwrecked on Malta and then gets on another boat and continues to Rome. And that's where we're picking up the story. Verse 11 of Acts chapter 28, uh, probably in February of the year 60 AD. After three months, three months after the shipwreck, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island of Malta. It was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods Castor and Pollux. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. From there we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day the south wind came up and on the following day we reached Puteoli. It's a, it's a nice Italian sounding town, Puteoli. There we found some brothers and sisters who invited us to spend a week with them. And so we came to Rome. The brothers and sisters there had heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Now, Paul had wanted to get to Rome for a long time. If we turn the clock back three years from when this happened, back to the spring of the year 57, Paul wrote his letter to the church in Rome, which is the next book in our Bibles after the book of Acts. And that letter to the church in Rome was probably written from the city of Corinth in a little three-month window, which is described for us in Acts chapter 20. And Corinth was a big, bustling, important city, and it was a Roman colony. It had been a Greek city, but then it had been uh, destroyed in various battles, and the Romans had refounded it as a Roman colony, an important Roman city. And from that Roman colony, Paul writes a letter to Rome itself, Rome, the center of empire, the center of civilization. And Paul longed to get to Rome and see the believers there. This is what he says to them at the beginning of his letter to the Romans. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. Paul says he wants to get to Rome. He's longing to see these believers and Three years later, when they come and meet him, as he's being taken as a prisoner to Rome, once he's landed in Italy, and it says he was encouraged. You can understand why. He's been longing to see them for so long. He wants to encourage them, impart a spiritual gift to them. He wants to see more fruit himself in the city of Rome. But he also wants to get to Rome because he wants to get beyond Rome. He's been busy planting churches throughout what we would think of as Turkey and Greece. And now he wants to get somewhere new, somewhere fresh. He actually wants to get to Spain. 
And so towards the end of his letter to the Romans, Paul says this, There is now no more place for me to work in these regions. And since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and that you will assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Paul wants to get to Rome for the sake of Rome and for the sake of the believers there, but he also wants to get beyond Rome for the sake of the gospel. This is how Paul finishes his letter to the Romans in Romans 16. He says the whole point, what it's all about is that all peoples might come to the obedience of faith for the glory of God. That's Paul's overarching goal in life, to see all peoples come to the obedience of faith for the glory of God. And when Paul says that in AD 57, when he writes that to the church in Rome, it completely aligns with what Jesus had said to the first disciples 25 years before, when he'd said to them, you are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That commission Jesus gave to the disciples, Paul has taken upon himself too. And that remains the mission of the church. Now, those of us who are part of this church, who know and love Jesus, we mustn't forget that this is the mission, bringing all people to the obedience of faith for the glory of God. That is what we are called to do. There's lots of other things which we do which are kind of part of that. We're called to serve the needs of the poor, whatever poverty looks like, whether it's financial or relational, whether it's other issues in life that people have. We're called to serve people's needs. We're, we're, we're called to be faithful in stewarding the things that God's put into our hands. Today we've taken up an offering for our facilities. Facilities facilitate the mission. We're called to do that kind of thing. We're, we're called to build community. It's great just to hang out together and have fun together. But we must never forget the overarching goal of what we're called to, which is to bring all peoples to the obedience of faith for the glory of God. And that means that we, keep, need, we need to keep looking for fresh mission doors to open to us. What is God calling us to next? What people group or what part of town or what different demographic is God calling us to now where we can speak about Jesus and his kingdom that we might see all peoples brought to the obedience of faith for the glory of God? That is the mission of the church. And so Paul, at last, three years after writing his letter to the Romans, at last he gets to Rome. But the way he gets there isn't as we might have imagined. Everywhere else that Paul goes, he goes under the leading of the Holy Spirit, but he goes as a free man. He comes to Rome as a prisoner. He's been arrested in Jerusalem. He spent two years in jail under the Roman governor Felix. When a new Roman governor Festus is appointed, Paul appears before him and then makes an appeal to Caesar. As a consequence, Festus says, okay, you'll go to Caesar, you'll go to Rome. At the start of this whole episode of the story, back in Acts chapter 20, uh, Paul had said to the Ephesian elders, I'm compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. Now, the thing which Paul didn't know three years previously when he spoke to the Ephesian elders is becoming clear. It was always about him getting to Rome. But God does things in very unexpected ways because surely there would have been an easier way for Paul to get to Rome 
than going through all the things he's gone through. Uh, look at this uh, next map. Stick the next one up. A bit more accurate map. Just in terms of the geography. So Paul writes the Romans from Corinth, and then he continues on his journey, and he heads towards Jerusalem. He, he's meant to end up in Rome. That's where the whole trajectory of the story, that's where he's meant to be. Jerusalem is nowhere near Rome. If he wanted to get to Rome, if God wanted him in Rome, why didn't he just get on a boat when he's in Corinth and make the short journey across to Italy and then go to Rome? Why go all that way across to Jerusalem? Why be arrested? Why be held in prison for two years? Why then take a difficult and dangerous boat journey which ends up in a horrific storm and a shipwreck on the island of Malta before getting to Rome? What's it all about? The reason is that every step of the way, God is using Paul as his witness. That actually it's all about the mission, including Paul arriving in Rome as a prisoner. Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Now that was unusually lax security under normal Roman policing arrangements. Normally a prisoner who's being held to be uh, here at a trial in Rome would have been guarded by two soldiers, but Paul was only guarded by one soldier. Clearly, the, the powers that be didn't think Paul was any kind of security threat. They didn't even think he was guilty. I mean, that would have been the verdict back in Jerusalem. This man's done nothing deserving of death. There isn't really any reason to try him. And so he's held under pretty light security. He rents his own place to stay. So it's not horrific, but he is chained to a Roman soldier permanently for those two years. This is the way it would have worked. He'd have had a handcuff on his wrist, a chain, chained to, to a handcuff on a Roman soldier's wrist, and every few hours the Roman soldier would have changed, a new one would have come on duty. So for two whole years, Paul was chained to a Roman guard. Now imagine the inconvenience. You can't do anything without dragging along the guy with the chain who's chained to you. You can't go to sleep, you can't go to the bathroom, you can't take a pee, you can't do anything without this guy being chained to you. There's nothing you can do. Imagine the inconvenience. Imagine the kind of personal humiliation that you're never on your own. You're always chained to someone else. And again, we might say, well, what on earth is the point? Why, what, he's been in jail for two years in Jerusalem already. He's had this horrific journey. He's been shipwrecked. And now he's chained to a Roman soldier for another two years. What's the point? This is how Paul describes it. While Paul was in Rome, he wrote some letters to other churches. He wrote to the church in Philippi, and he says this, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. What was the point of Paul's torturous journey? What was the point of his imprisonment? What was the point of the chains? The point was this, the gospel was advancing. Through it all, he'd been a witness. He'd witnessed to Felix, and he'd witnessed to Festus, and he'd witnessed to King Agrippa, and 
all their retinues who would have attended them. And he'd witnessed to the 275 other people who went on the boat with him. And he witnessed to the people on the island of Malta when they were shipwrecked there. And now he's in Rome, and there's a rotation of soldiers who are chained to him night and day. And they have all heard the good news of Jesus and about the kingdom of God. The gospel is being made known throughout the seat, throughout the center of imperial power. And as Paul in chains proclaims the gospel, that encourages the Roman believers. Paul had written to them three years before, I want to encourage you, impart some spiritual gift to you. Now he's in chains, not what any of them would have expected, but by that he's speaking courage into them, so they with more courage speak about Jesus. And the amazing thing is that Rome is being reached in a way it never would have been done if Paul had arrived more normally. If Paul had just turned up in the normal way, he'd never have made the gospel impact that he did as a result of being there as a prisoner. He wouldn't have got access to the center of power as he did because he was chained to the Roman guards. The very chain that held him was the means by which the gospel was proclaimed at the center of empire. Now, how might the Lord be using our circumstances? It might be in your life, maybe even at the moment, you feel chained by something in some way. And if you have that sense of being chained by something, we want to shake the chain off. The chain is inconvenient at best and can feel oppressive and controlling at worst. And a chain is not what you want. You want to break the chains. But maybe, as in this case with Paul, actually God wants to use the very thing which seems to entangle you as a means of gospel advance. Maybe God wants to use that circumstance as a means by which he might speak through you to others who would not be reached if it were not for that chain. Let's pick it up in verse 17 and read the rest of the story. Three days later, three days after he'd arrived in Rome, he called together the local Jewish leaders. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. The Jews objected, so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason I have asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain." They replied, We have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of our people who have come from there has reported or said anything bad about you, but we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God and from the law of Moses and from the prophets he tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed amongst themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving, for this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. 
Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. At this point in history, there were several thousand Jews living in Rome. And as Paul's custom always was, he went to the Jews first. And the Jews in Rome want to understand more of what is going on with this Christian sect, and Paul wants to tell them. And as he speaks to them, some of them are convinced, others are not. And that is the repeating pattern we see in the book of Acts, that wherever the apostles go, wherever they preach, some respond gladly, others resist the message. And so then Paul quotes... Uh, from Isaiah about how the people of Israel so often have blocked ears and closed eyes and hard hearts and don't receive from God what he would have for them. And that really sums up Paul's own sorrow that his own people, the people of Israel, are not turning to Jesus as they should. Uh, When Paul wrote to the Roman church three years before, he expressed it like this, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Paul is heartbroken that his own people will not receive Jesus as he has done. But the fact that they reject Jesus gives Paul opportunity to speak to other peoples, other nations, the good news of Jesus. And that is the goal, that all peoples would come to the obedience of faith for the glory of God. And that's what happens for two years Paul preaches in boldness and without hindrance. He's chained to a guard. Think of the inconvenience, but it's two years of unimpeded ministry. It's two years in which the city of Rome is reached with the gospel. Rome, the empire which invaded so many other lands, is itself now invaded by the kingdom of God as a greater power is declared even in Caesar's household, as Paul speaks. Book of Acts ends. What happens next? It's one of the mysteries. You might expect Luke to write another book. He's written two, the Gospel of of Luke and then the Book of Acts. Uh, All the best movies come in trilogies. Where's the third part of this story? Luke didn't write it. We're not quite sure what happened to Paul. Probably the charges against him were simply dropped. They were too flimsy, too insubstantial. They were never going to stand up. And also Paul, as well as being a Jew, was a Roman citizen. And in Rome, some strange religious accusation from a bunch of Jews back in Jerusalem was never going to bear much weight against the testimony of a Roman citizen standing in Caesar's court. So probably the whole thing just fizzled out. And after two years, Paul is let go. Perhaps he got to Spain as he'd hoped to. According to church tradition, a few years later, sometime between AD 64 and AD 68, 
Under Nero's rule, Paul is arrested again, tried, and that time beheaded. But of course, that's not the end of the story. And the story isn't even primarily about Paul. As, Paul, as Luke writes the book of Acts, there are many other leading figures who do amazing things but then drop from sight. Luke doesn't record what happens to Peter. He doesn't record what happens to Barnabas. doesn't record what happens to Priscilla or an Aquila or Apollos. All these people are key to the story, but they're not the point of the story. They're heroes in the story, but they're not the hero of the story. Only Jesus is the hero. And this 30-year history, AD 32 to AD 62, that Luke records in this book is, of course, just the opening chapter of the ongoing story of the church's mission to the world. And over the past 2,000 years, there have been many breakthroughs in the gospel and many gospel heroes. The gospel did get to Spain, whether it was through Paul or someone else, and to the rest of Europe. And the gospel did go to Africa, and it did go to Asia, and it's gone to the Americas, and it's gone to Australasia. And there are countless faithful men and women, some of whom we know and celebrate, the vast multitudes of whom are obscure, who have carried on the work that Jesus commissioned his disciples to do. And today the gospel has spread to every corner of the earth. But there is still work to be done. There are still peoples who need to be brought to the obedience of faith for the glory of God. That's true in places where there is at the moment extraordinary gospel advance. It's true in China where tens of millions are turning in faith to Jesus. But there are still Multiple tens of millions more who need to be brought to the obedience of faith for the glory of God. It's true in the hard-to-reach places, like those nations which are particularly under the sway and under an oppressive sway of Islam. They need to be brought to the obedience of faith for the glory of God. It's true in places where the gospel has previously borne much fruit but seems to have faded, as is in the case in Western Europe. <clears throat> it's true in our town. In Bournemouth and Paul, there are peoples who need to be brought to the obedience of faith for the glory of God. Paul proclaimed the gospel in Rome. Our world is still shaped by Rome. The Roman Empire ended somewhere around the year AD 390. But in many ways, Rome didn't end. It just kind of morphed into what became the different empires and power structures of Western Europe. Rome still exists in that sense. But there is a greater kingdom. <coughs> After Easter, we're planning to do a series from the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. And uh, Daniel is a Jew who's held captive in Babylon. And the king of Babylon, the king of the Babylonian Empire, Nebuchadnezzar, has a dream of a statue, a statue made of gold and silver and bronze and iron and clay. And those different elements represent different empires, the Babylonian and the Persian and the Greek and the Roman empires and he has a dream of a statue which is destroyed by a rock that is cut out and thrown against the statue and Daniel interprets a dream for him and says this in the time of those kings the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed nor will it be left to another people it will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end but it will itself endure forever 
This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. That rock is the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom that Paul proclaimed in Rome. And it is a kingdom that will endure and fill the whole earth. This is the kingdom that we are called to be part of. And it's the kingdom that we are called to proclaim. And so as we come to the end of the book of Acts, we need to see the way in which the book of Acts is for us a model of what church life can be like. We need to see the way in which the book of Acts is a challenge for us that so often our experience doesn't seem to measure up to the experience of what we see in the book of Acts. But we also need to see the book of Acts then as giving us a dream of what the Lord could do in our day through people like us. A 30-year history of spirit-empowered mission. What might the Lord do through us in the next 30 years? As we proclaim the kingdom of God and Jesus, what might God do through us? Let's do it again. Let's do it again for the sake of Jesus. And let's do it again so that all peoples might be brought to the obedience of faith for the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Let's respond. Why don't we stand and I'll pray and then we'll worship. I've been speaking this morning primarily to those of us who already know and love Jesus and are part of his church. Might be that's not you yet, that you don't know Jesus. The invitation to you would be to enter enter this kingdom of God today, to come into relationship with Jesus. Don't be be like the people Isaiah spoke about. Don't be hard-hearted. Don't shut your ears, shut your eyes to what God is doing. But if you don't know Jesus, why not reach out to him and ask him to make himself known to you, make himself real to you today, that you might be caught up in his kingdom and this mission. It's the thing that's going to last and endure beyond anything else. All other empires fall. It's only the reign of God that will endure. Everything else crumbles. He alone is the rock. Everything else is temporary. He alone is eternal. You can trust in him. Reach out to him and ask ask him to make himself known to you. And for the rest of us, let's pray. I'll pray for us as a church that we might be caught up again in the mission of God. Lord, thank you for what we've seen through the book of Acts. Jesus, thank you for the promise of the Holy Spirit, which is now, he is now given to us that we can be empowered as well. And I pray that we would be a spirit-empowered people and that we would be on the mission that you've called us to. I pray that we, Gateway Church, wouldn't forget the overarching goal which is to see all peoples brought to the obedience of faith for the glory of God. I pray in our day, in our town, you'd help us to outwork that. And Lord, you'd help us to keep pushing into fresh mission, into regions beyond, into the things you want us to to do and the places that you want us to go. Lord, I pray that we, like Paul, would keep trusting you, keep leaning into your calling, keep believing your promise, and uh, continuing to see the fruit of the gospel being worked out through us. We ask this, Lord, I pray that in our day, in our town, we might see many more coming to that obedience of faith and coming to bring you glory as well as members of your kingdom, as people who belong to the glorious household of God. Lord, this is our desire. This is a mission you've called us to. Spirit of God, empower us in our day for this task. 
In your name, Jesus, we ask it. Amen. 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 Let's worship him.